We started a, a journey last week where we were just asking ourselves the question, what, what difference would there be in my life? An awareness of a transformation over me, but also an awareness for those around me who would see something different if I had truly allowed the Jesus in me to live out of me. That he would be where I go, and he is where I go, but let's remember that sometimes he comes where we go, but we don't let him do anything. We allow him to be an observer rather than a participant. So we're looking at discipleship, and and what does it mean to allow Jesus to fully oversee everything that we say, we think, and we do? And I just wanted to start off by um, just sharing a, a little bit of a story. Um, and it's a story that uh, is very close to our family's heart. And it's, it's a story of our, our family. And our family is, uh, is myself and, and Carol and, and Josh and Ben. That's the four of us in the family. But at one time, there were more than just four of us. If you can see in the bottom corner of the... Uh, picture. I received this as a gift one year from Ben. Um, there's the four of us, but there's like three little shapes. Can you see those? Can you see those? The three little shapes. Now, this is um, Ollie and uh, Bear and Percy. Now, Ollie and Bear and Percy uh, came into our family. Um, and the thing about them is that uh, it's okay having pets. I don't know if any of you have ever had pets. It's all right having pets. But the thing about pets is they become a, uh, a demand. They move from being an option to an obligation. They move from being a, just a pet to being a chore. They move from somebody to play with to being something that you have to care for. That's the way of, of pets. Um, Chances are you know the uh, way that commitment can sometimes cause us to feel constrained. How many times I've lost count of trying to remind Ben that they're his guinea pigs? Um, because uh, eventually they just became... Well, I don't know if you have the same situation. It, it becomes easier just to do the jobs than to get them to do the jobs. And uh, I grew to love those guinea pigs. Yeah, they, they were great. And, and uh, they're no longer with us. <laughs> but what about if we move on from the fact that they're your guinea pigs and we're trying to express this to our to our youngest son, that this is the commitment, and we only actually went, when we went to buy the guinea pigs, to get one, and then you find out that um, you're not allowed to just have one, you've got to have two, because they need buddies. I, I never realised that guinea pigs had this issue with friendship. And then when you go to the place to buy the guinea pigs, you find that they've only got three left, and the lady who's selling the guinea pigs says she's going to give us the guinea pigs. Not only is she going to give us the guinea pigs, that she wouldn't allow us just to take two. We had to take three. <laughs> so the commitment. But what if the commitment isn't, just a, isn't about guinea pigs or pets? What if the commitment is about uh, your husband or your wife 
or your child, a parent, uh, an employee, a, a boss, somebody who you spend time with. Sometimes when we can't get away from those relationships, it can cause a sense of, of panic and frustration. Ben had to answer some tough questions. You know, for him it was, can he tolerate the cheeky, hairy, hungry faces every morning? Am I going to be squeaked at for the whole of my life? When will they ever learn to clean up their own mess? Those sort of questions. And this is a word um, I remember coming up with and, uh, and realising is a word that, that we find so often in our lives. is is the word uh, stuckititis. Can you say that? Stuckititis. Stuckititis. So here's stuckititis, as you can see, um, means, well, the first part of it is, is stuck, which means trapped. We find ourselves uh, trapped. And then ititis is just six letters that you stick on the end to make it sound better than it actually is. The definition, uh, attacks of uh, stuckititis are limited to people who breathe and typically occur somewhere between birth and death. Uh, Stuckititis manifests itself in uh, irritability, short fuses, and uh, a mountain range of molehills. <laughs> the whole thing that people find is that when you're in this place of stuckititis, questions come out like who and what and why. Who is this person? What were I thinking of? And why didn't I listen to my mother? It's... <laughs> But there's three ways that you can deal with um, stuckititis. Here's the three ways that you can still uh, deal with stuckititis. You can do three things. If you find yourself in a situation where there's an oppressive commitment and there's connection and you're feeling in some way overwhelmed by what's going on, you can do one of three things. The first thing you can do is flee. Get out of the relationship. Get out of the situation. Start again somewhere else. And that is a very common thing that people do. I've got to get away from this. And I'm off. The only trouble is, is that the grass that looked greener on the other side of the fence isn't. And when you move on, you take yourself with you. And very often, there's issues with yourself that need to be sorted too. Fleeing. The other one you can do is you, you can fight. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where the home becomes a combat zone. Or the office becomes a place of, of tension and activity that is always focused on... Well, it just seems like war. I'm going no longer to work, but I'm going to war. And that's how a lot of people deal with issues. They fight it. Or there's the other thing that you can do. You can forgive. You can work yourself into a place of being free... By forgiving. So I look at the story of Jesus and I recognise that he was one who, who found himself stuck. And he was stuck with people who um, were not the greatest to be stuck with. There were twelve following him. He called them, gathered them to himself. And then for three years he went on a journey. But in that journey there were extreme times where there must have been moments when Jesus said, I could just forget this. 
But of course, he didn't. He put up with them. Even though he could hear the thoughts before they became words. Because of who he was, he was aware of their doubts. He was aware of their failings, even if those failings weren't confessed. He knew of the mistakes they'd made, but he also knew of the mistakes that they were going to make. He would find very clearly that he knew some of the actions that they were going to do before they even knew it for themselves. And I wonder, was it difficult for Jesus to love Peter, even though he knew that Peter was going to deny him? What about the situation with Thomas? Big day, post-crucifixion, resurrection, there's a guy who's on my team who's going to doubt me. Maybe he had times when he felt, I'd like to recruit some new followers. Those guys that he had wanted to rise up against the people around them. Peter sliced off the ear of another. Just before Jesus' death, His disciples were arguing about who was going to be the best. How was he able to love people like that? Few situations stir panic like being trapped in a relationship. It's one thing to be stuck with a guinea pig, but something else entirely to be stuck in a work situation or a marriage or in relationships, in family. And we might think to ourselves, this whole, the whole idea of uh, stuck in Titus is, is a bit silly, but it's really no laughing matter if that is your personal reality. For that reason, I think it's wise that we begin our journey of discipleship with Jesus by finding out what it means to be, be a disciple, by pondering what it is to have his heart that is a heart of Forgiveness. Being one who forgives. How could Jesus love his disciples? The answer is found in uh, the 13th chapter of John. And the story that we saw on that video was of Jesus meeting with the disciples at Passover, leading up to his crucifixion, where he has a meal and kneels before his followers and washes their feet. Jesus knew at that time he was about to be leaving the world. Having loved the world, he now showed the full extent of his love. By taking off his outer garment, wrapping a towel around his waist, gathering a bowl, filling it with water and going down on bended knee. This is what it says in John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that The time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. That evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, poured water in a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. It's been a long day. 
Jerusalem is packed, it's Passover. For the disciples gathering together, the splash of cold water on their feet was going to be refreshing and most welcome. The disciples had taken their place around the table. They're ready to eat. The last thing that they were thinking of was that the one that they were following was going to be the one who served them. Jesus does what the lowest of the low usually does. If they find him unlacing their sandals, they find him gently lifting their feet and washing them, one by one, one grimy, dirty, stinky foot after another, Jesus works his way along the rows and serves each and every one of them. You see, this job is a job for the lowest of the low. Washing of feet was not something that anybody who had any sense of, uh, of hierarchy or uh, any sense of authority would ever have done. Yet Jesus is the one who takes the towel and the basin. This is the king of the universe washing people's feet. Hands that flung stars into space are now holding on to dirty, dusty, stinky feet. Fingers that formed mountains are now massaging toes. What a situation. One before all nations will one day bow the knee is on his knees, washing feet. You see, hours before Jesus' crucifixion, he wants his disciples to know very clearly how much he loves them. Let me do something for you that will clearly signify the enormity of my love towards you. More than removing the dirt, Jesus' passion was to remove any doubt. These guys are going to have to go on and live out what it means to be filled with Jesus. We haven't got room for doubt. You need to be clear about these things. Within 24 hours, they will find themselves absolutely shocked. (coughs) Jesus knows what the future holds for his disciples. And it's not a case of, I need to get you together and give you a, a, a really focused and intense lecture about how things are going to be after I'm gone, he takes that time, that precious time that was left, and he shows them, this is what your future is all about. I tried to find a Bible translation that would have said something like, Jesus washed all the disciples' feet except for the feet of Judas. Couldn't find one anywhere. So even the one who was betraying him had his feet washed. He knows they are about to do something that is shocking in relationship to him. They will turn their backs, they will run. One is denying One is doubting. 
But Jesus wants something very, very clear in the forefront of their minds. By morning, they'll be burying their heads in shame and looking down at their feet in disgust. And when they do, they'll be looking at feet that have been washed by their Saviour. When they look at their feet, they'll be reminded the clearest message that Jesus wanted to give is, I love you, now love the world around you. John 13 verse 7, it says this, Jesus replied, you do not realise now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Maybe that's exactly it. You see, you can't go anywhere without your feet. The book of Isaiah reminds us how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And for the disciples, those feet were going to be carrying the best news. That Jesus is alive and continues to love. But for the moment, Jesus says to his followers, you don't know what I'm doing at this moment in time. You have got no comprehension of the significance of me washing your feet. But there'll be a point when you bow your heads, when you look at your feet, you'll remember. We need to remember. You see, just to take on board the fact that Jesus has forgiven your sin before you've sinned is a mind shift for many of us. So often we find ourselves caught up in the repetition of always going back and asking again for forgiveness. I think it's always good to go back and confess and recognise that the word is speaking into our hearts about the things we've done, the things we've said, the thoughts that we thought. But Jesus isn't going to die again. We are a forgiven people. Which means that there is never a point in time when it's not appropriate to come into the presence of God and acknowledge his presence with us. In no point does he say, get out of my way. I don't want to be near you. You're disgusting, dirty, you've done it again. Those are never words that he has said to us or will ever say to us. And here we find Jesus washing feet of disciples, putting into their minds a solid memory that the future's going to be tough, but he's overcoming. What's going to happen at the cross will be life-giving. Sometimes we find ourselves caught in a place where we may believe that what we're experiencing and what we've experienced is too great, too much. But at that point in time, we need to do something that we talked about a bit last week, which was fix our eyes on Jesus. Not on the situation, not on the individuals involved, but to fix our eyes on Jesus. Look to the one who's telling us so clearly again today how much he loves us. Our Saviour kneels down 
and gazes upon the darkest acts of our lives. But rather than recoiling in horror, he reaches out in kindness and says, I can clean that up if you want me to. And who doesn't want him to clean up some of the messes in our lives? And from the basin of his grace, he scoops a palmful of water and mercy and love and he pours them over our personal situation. But that's not all he does. Because he lives in us, you and I can also do the same. Because he's forgiven us, we can also forgive others. Because he has a forgiving heart, we also can have forgiving hearts. That which he has done, we recognise in John 14, we are called to do. This is what it says in, in John 13 again. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example so that you should do as I have done. He actually says it's doable. You can do this. We can do this together. God in us says there's no relationship, there's no place that we're finding ourselves stuck that he can't bring release and renewal. And it begins with something called forgiveness. Because he offers us unconditional grace, we are to offer others unconditional grace. The mercy that Christ has preceded our lives with, and he has gone before us, is the same mercy that we should allow to flow over to the mistakes of others that we meet Paul wrote these words, he says, in Ephesians 4.32, he says, Be kind and loving to each other. Forgive each other just as God forgave you in Christ. Then you can turn around and say, hang about Dave, let me just ask you this question. Um, I've not done anything wrong. I'm not the one who's cheated. I'm not the one who's lied. I'm not the one who's deceived. I'm not the one who's behaving in a way that is absolutely so difficult to deal with. Yeah, I, I, maybe that's not you. Maybe that's the other person towards you. But Jesus was perfect. He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And he was willing to take his perfection from glory, to come and walk on earth, to live a perfect life, to die a horrific death for you and for me. He didn't do anything that he had to pay for because he was the sinless one. And he says, even though you are the innocent one, you may be the one who's the catalyst to start things changing with your forgiveness. The one worthy of being served, served. And why should it be any different for us? You see, the burden of bridge building always falls on the strongest one. Jesus is the one who built the bridge. Because he was the one capable of doing it. We find ourselves as the weak in that relationship. And therefore, he goes the extra mile for us. 
The one who is innocent makes the gesture. You know what happens? The more and more often than not, if the one in the right volunteers to wash the feet of the people who are in the wrong, both parties find themselves on their knees. And from that place, restoration and transformation takes place. There's one point that I just hit on this week. Relationships don't thrive because the guilty are punished, but because the innocent are merciful. And that's what Jesus asks us to be, a people of mercy. Let me read to you a story in closing. A pastor wrote these words. He said, recently I shared a meal with some friends husband and wife wanted to tell me about a storm that they were weathering. Through a series of events, she learned of an act of infidelity that had occurred over a decade ago. He had made the mistake of thinking it'd be better not to tell her, so he didn't. But she found out and was deeply hurt. Through the advice of a counsellor, the couple dropped everything, went away for several days. A decision about the future had to be made. Would they flee? Would they fight? Or would they forgive? So they prayed. They talked. They walked. They reflected. In this case, the wife was clearly in the right. She could have left. Women have done so for lesser reasons. She could have stayed and made his life a living hell. Other women have done that too. But she chose a a different response. On the last night of their trip, this guy found a card on his pillow. And on the card was written these words. I'd rather do nothing with you than something without you. I forgive you. I love you. Let's move on. In one sense, that card may very well have been a a basin and a jug of water. The pen might as well have been uh, the heart of love that Christ expressed towards us. What this lady did in this situation was washed her husband's feet. And I think that there are only, well, there are certain conflicts that can only be resolved with basins of water on our knees. And we find ourselves in a world that is thirsty for forgiveness and mercy. People who've messed up need to be given the opportunity to stand up and to start again. And what Jesus did was made sure that the disciples had absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that he didn't love them. He did love them. I'm taking away from you any excuse that anyone may have that would minimalise the amount of love that I have for you, which is extreme. And he calls us to be likewise as disciples of Christ. People who have got Jesus in me, let's allow forgiveness to flow. I don't know any personal situations here today. 
But let me just remind you that Holy Spirit is with us and he brings to our attention those things that we might need to act upon. Maybe today there's a phone call that needs to be made, a conversation that needs to be had. Maybe there's a walk that needs to be taken and some boldness in your heart to say something that you've wanted to say for a long time. But it isn't a time of digging into the past, but it's a time for burying the past, for forgiveness, for restoration and renewal. And when we come in a few moments to take bread and wine, realise that this is where you get your strength. Because he is in you, empowering you, helping you to be the loving, compassionate, merciful Christ follower that he's called you to be. Let's pray. We're just going to ask you, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit this morning, you will indeed Prompt us on our journey of reconciliation. Where there have been hurts, Lord, today we want to ask that your healing balm may bring restoration and renewal. Where we felt used and abused, neglected, taken for granted, Would you heal us and restore us? Where we have found no honour in our home, no honour in our workplaces, no honour in gatherings with others, would you bring about an honour in our hearts that we would be the people who lead the way, that we would start the journey Lord, we know that there's a massive work to be done. But we reflect upon the fact that you've finished the work for us already on the cross. When we look at our own feet in the future, Lord, would you remind us again of your love for us that might strengthen us to be the loving, caring, compassionate, forgiving, merciful people that you call us to be. Forgive us, Lord, where we've stalled in the past, where we've made things difficult for those around us. Give us a love, rekindle a passion. May we be a people who see restoration as a privilege that we will find ourselves immersed in moment by moment, day by day. In Jesus' name, Amen.